We've already noted that in the Garden of Gethsemane, the traitor Judas Iscariot had betrayed the Lord. And from there, Christ was brought to the palace of the high priest, where he was involved in what I've called a kangaroo court, the greatest miscarriage of justice ever perpetrated on the earth. For there the scribes and the elders of the Sanhedrin accused the Lord falsely. There were charges brought against him that didn't even agree with one another. But yet they found him guilty of death. He was spat upon, he was buffeted, he was beaten with rods. And after this, he was brought by the religious power to the secular power. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, whom the Jews hoped would deliver Jesus over to be crucified if they could prove against him a capital offence. The capital offence that could only be applicable in that case, of course, was treason against Caesar. Pilate, Pilate was not interested in any of the religious objections that were made by the Jews. But if there was a charge brought of treason against a person involving Caesar, the king, that was a different matter. And under that charge, someone could be put to death. So as soon as their early morning meeting was over, and their guilty verdict officially recorded, the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin delivered Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Now, the governor, you should understand, usually resided at Caesarea. But it was his custom to be in Jerusalem every year for the feast. His presence pleased some of the Jews. He could be on hand if any problems arose among the thousands of people that were crowded into Jerusalem for the feast. Now, Roman governors held court early in the morning, so he was quite prepared when they brought the prisoner to him. The Jewish council had to convince Pilate that Jesus was guilty of this capital crime and was in fact worthy of death. But in spite of their political corruption, many Roman officials actually had an appreciation for justice and they tried to deal fairly with prisoners. And furthermore, Pilate himself had no great love for the Jews and their leaders, and he wasn't about to do them any special favours. He knew that the Sanhedrin members were not interested in seeing justice done. What they really wanted was vengeance. Now, how do we know that? Because in Mark chapter 15 and verse 10, the Bible says, For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. He knew their motivation. He knew they weren't interested, really, in justice. Now, I have to say that John's Gospel gives us the most details of the Roman trial. But when you combine the Gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll discover that Pilate repeatedly stated that he found no fault in Jesus at all. He couldn't see any reason why he should be crucified. And you can read that 
in John 18 and Luke 23, in John 19 and Luke 23 verse 22, for another reference there in Luke, and in Matthew 27, 24. But Pilate's problem was that he lacked the courage to stand up for what he believed. He wanted to avoid a riot, according to Matthew's account, and so he was willing to content the people. That's what Mark 15, verse 15 records. He, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them. Pilate never asked, is it right? But rather, is it safe? Is it popular with the people? He was a real politician. Now, the Jewish council had only one capital crime that they might be able to present to Pilate. And that was that Jesus claimed to be a king, the king of the Jews. And he stirred up the people. They tried to pass him off as a dangerous revolutionary who was undermining the authority of Rome. But as Pilate questioned Jesus, the Lord said nothing. He was silent. But the chief priest kept accusing him, kept trying to wear down the resistance of Pontius Pilate, the governor. Pilate thought he could make a decision by avoiding making a decision. So he thought, I'll send him to Herod, the ruler of Galilee. And we read about that in Luke chapter 23. But Herod only sent Jesus back to him again after mocking him with his soldiers. So then the governor offered the people a choice. Jesus the Nazarene or a criminal called Barabbas, who actually was a murderer and an insurrectionist. He was a revolutionary. And he thought wrongly that surely sanity would prevail and they would ask to have Jesus released. Why would they not? He's an innocent man. But the chief priests had prepared the crowd very carefully. Mark 15 verse 11 makes that clear. The chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. They were the ringleaders in this conspiracy. They got the people to agree to it. And so they asked for Barabbas to be set free and Jesus to be crucified. So the governor then tried a third ruse. He had Jesus punished by scourging. Now, scourging was a terrible ordeal for a prisoner. Many a prisoner did not survive scourging. They often died at the whipping post because they used a whip with leather thongs that had pieces of bone and shards of metal in it so that it would rip the flesh away from the person who was being punished. So the mess that they left the Lord Jesus in is beyond comprehension. The Bible tells us that his form was unrecognizable. If you read what Isaiah 53 tells us. And uh, Isaiah 52 in the closing verses. His form more than the sons of men. And the governor, Pilate, had Jesus scourged for this reason. He hoped that the sight of a suffering prisoner like that would somehow arouse their pity. And verse 15, I think, makes that clear. But they asked for Barabbas, 
All the same. Pilate's plan did not work. The people called all the more for his blood. You'll find in another gospel record that Pilate took a basin of water then and washed his hands, symbolically washing his hands off the whole matter, trying to say it's nothing to do with me now, but actually it was everything to do with him. And God would hold him accountable for what he did that day because he gave in to the crowd and delivered Jesus to be crucified. Now think about this choice that Pilate offered to the Jews. Releasing either Barabbas, a murderer, a robber, an insurrectionist, or Jesus, who now stood before them. They elected to set Barabbas free and to have Jesus crucified. Having made their decision, now Pilate himself had a choice facing him. What to do with Jesus? You'll see a question that he spoke to the crowd in verse 12 of Mark 15. What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? Pilate's rendering of this is in the following words. What shall I do then with Jesus which is called Christ? What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And you'll find that reference in Matthew 27, verse 22. I've called that the question of all questions. Because that question, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? What will ye then that I shall do unto him, whom ye call the King of the Jews, is still relevant today. Even though over 2,000 years have passed since it was first uttered, the inquiry still faces sinners today. And it's a question that comes before us this morning. What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And there are a number of things, just simple points, that I want to make concerning this great question and looking at the context surrounding the question, I would say in the first place, it is obviously a personal question. Notice the personal pronoun that's used. What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? What will you then that I shall do? This is a question for me, personally. What will I do? It's not, what will my wife do? We know that in another scripture, his wife warned Pilate not to have anything to do with that just man. Because she said, I had a dream about him. And I would say to you, don't have anything to do with him. You better literally wash your hands of the whole matter. But the question wasn't, what will Pilate's wife do with Jesus? And it wasn't even, what has Herod done with Jesus? He's already sent him to Herod, who mocked him and then sent him back. And he didn't even say, what shall Caesar do? But what shall I do? 
It was an inquiry for Pilate himself alone to answer. It was an individual question. He was on the spot. If you like, humanly speaking, he had power to either set Christ free or to crucify him. Now, obviously, when we know the truth of Scripture, John's Gospel, chapter 10, reminds us that Christ had sole power to lay down his life and to take it again. He said, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. This is true, but humanly speaking, as we see this event take place, Pilate had the authority to do as he chose with the Savior. He had a decision to make. Either to release or to crucify the Lord. That's what it came down to. Look at verse 9 of Mark 14, or Mark 15. Will ye that I release unto you the King of the Jews? I've got the power to do that, he thought. I can release Barabbas or I can release Jesus. But he had to reach an answer to that question by himself and make a personal decision. And isn't that how it is in the gospel? Where the person who is unsaved has to address that question to his or her own heart. What shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ? It's not what will your spouse do, or what will other members of your family do, or what will your friends do, or what will anyone else do? The question is, what will you do with the Son of God? When you come to the judgment bar of God, as we all shall, you will stand alone. My Bible tells me in Romans 14 verse 12, So then every man shall give account of himself to God. You stand there on your own. Just you and the Lord. You will not be answering for anyone else, and no one else will be answering for you. The question will be, what did you do with Jesus, which is called Christ? Did you receive him? Did you reject him? Did you accept him as Lord and Savior? Or did you refuse to have him to rule over you? It's a personal question. But I think as well as that, we have to look upon this as a practical question. Pilate was called upon to do something. Now, he wanted to present the case that he didn't have to do anything. And that is why you read in one of the Gospels here that he took a bowl of water, a basin of water, and he washed his hands. We read this in Matthew 27, to be exact, in verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. The problem is that wasn't true. I am innocent of the blood of this just person. I'm handing him over to you to do whatever you... He had the power. He had the responsibility. He had the authority to make a decision on the fate of Christ that day. 
What shall I do? Was the question. What shall I do? Something was to be done with the Lord Jesus Christ that day. Action was to be taken. Pilate would actually do something. And let me tell you, when the gospel is preached, people may think, well, I'm not going to do anything. Well, by saying you're not doing anything, you're doing something. Because you see, by nature, we are Christ rejectors. So if someone says, I'm not going to take anything to do with the question, what will I do with Jesus Christ? By saying that, you're actually doing something. Of course it is true, and we have to emphasize it, that you can do nothing for salvation. Let me underline that. You cannot do anything to save yourself. Every man, every woman, every child is spiritually dead by nature. Dead in sins, not comatose, not in a, a sort of a, a sleep, but dead in trespasses and sins. Totally and absolutely unable to contribute to their own salvation in any way, shape or form. They're impotent. They are helpless to do anything for themselves spiritually. Kind of like the man there in John chapter 5 who was sitting by the pool and couldn't do anything to get into the pool. An impotent man. Unlike what is preached from many a pulpit, we have to say today that you can do no good work that would save you. And even if we were capable of doing good works, it wouldn't save us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are very clear verses. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So what every sinner needs is to be quickened into life in regeneration, what we call the new birth, being born again by the Spirit of God. Jesus said it to Nicodemus, who was a religious man. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. And we know that that means born from above. Born of the Spirit. And yet, while all of that is true, I can tell you today, on the authority of God's Word, that God treats you as a sinner, as a responsible agent. You're not a pawn on a chessboard. You're not a robot. You're not a puppet on a string. You have been given moral agency. Not free will, but free agency. The two different things. And you must do something with Christ as the claims of the gospel are brought to bear upon you. Now, when you do something, it means that you act upon what you have heard. So notice what the scripture says about faith. Romans 10 verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. By grace are you saved through faith. You must exercise faith toward God and the Lord Jesus Christ if you are to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Jesus himself said it. He that believeth shall be saved. Believe in God's Word. Trust in the finished work of Christ at Calvary for your salvation. 
the Philippian jailer who had incarcerated Paul and Silas, he asked a very practical question to the two men in the jail. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Cease rejecting, stop rejecting, and now receive Christ, as the old catechism puts it, as he is freely offered to you in the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ is not a work, but it is a ceasing from work. Yet doesn't the Bible say, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he hath sent. Personal question, what shall I do? A practical question, what shall I do? I think as well we must refer to this as a predominant or a preeminent question. That's why I've called it the question of all questions. That's what I've titled this message. Pontius Pilate, if he lived for a thousand years, would never face a more important question than this one. He would never face a question upon which the answer had so much writing on it. And sadly, as we read the scripture, we we see that the man did not realize how vital it was. His whole eternity rested on the answer that he would give. What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? Am I going to be on the side of Christ? Or am I going to be on the side of the enemies of Christ? And this is the predominant and preeminent question that faces every sinful man, woman and child. I can tell you today it's the most crucial question you will ever consider. There's a lot of different questions that come up in our lives. What we'll do about this, that and the other thing. Who will we marry? Where will we live? What will we work at? And so on and so forth. But here's the most important question. The question of all questions. Because your answer means the difference between heaven and hell. Simple as that. You're either on the side of the Savior or those who are against the Savior. To put it very plainly, it's paradise or perdition. Oh, how much rests on the answer to this great question. The stakes could never be higher. What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? The Lord has brought this into my life. The question. I can't avoid it. I can't dodge it. I can't pretend it doesn't exist. The Lord Jesus Christ is before me. I'm just like Pilate. I have to make a decision. Am I going to be for him or against him? Oh, how this question needs to be pondered well. It's a predominant question. It was so for Pilate. The question of all questions. Obviously then it was a perplexing question. It was perplexing because he would rather not have answered it. 
the question really bothered him. He would have loved, you see, to have taken his wife's advice. Look again at Matthew 27 and verse 19. When he, that's Pilate, was sat down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? Even she could testify to the innocence of Christ, that just man. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. I've been dreaming about this Jesus of Nazareth. You better have nothing to do with him. And Pilate would have loved to have said, yes dear, I don't want anything to do with it. But he had everything to do with it. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We can't avoid this perplexing question. What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? Pilate is on the spot here. He's in the hot seat. Now, to understand the dynamics of of the rejection that Pilate made of Christ ultimately, you have to know something about him. And we, we find as we read secular writings, such as the Antiquities of Josephus, who was a well-known Jewish author and historian, that Pilate's career before coming to Judea as procurator is unknown, except that he undoubtedly served in a series of civil and military appointments. And there's some on the basis of tradition who think that his marriage to Claudia Procula may have gained the position for him. I wouldn't doubt it since he was that kind of man. But what we do know from ancient historians like Josephus and from Scripture doesn't put Pilate in a very good light. He was an inept and heavy-handed administrator Josephus tells us that he insulted the Jews by having his soldiers to bring flags bearing images of Caesar into Jerusalem and it almost caused open rebellion. On another occasion, he raided the sacred Korban treasury of the temple. That was a treasure that was to be used only for service to God. And he did that to pay for the building of an aqueduct. Those who objected were beaten by plain-clothes soldiers. Again, you find this in the antiquities of Josephus. Once again, he provoked the Jews over an alleged idolatry incident. And ultimately, he lost his job when he ordered his cavalry to attack Samaritans who were assembled at Mount Gerizim in a religious quest. Again, Josephus. The 4th century historian Eusebius records that from there on life went so bad for Pilate that he took his own life. Ended up as a suicide. You see, Pontius Pilate was a man who lusted for celebrity and status. He put his career before everything, including people and principle. 
And when he finally lost his position, he felt that his life was not worth living. He lacked the traditional Roman virtues of honor and integrity, but rather lived for his career. In short, he lived for himself. So here he is, on the spot, with this perplexing question. On one hand, he has the Sanhedrin, the wicked priests and scribes, and the howling mob supporting them. And on the other hand, the meek, innocent, sinless Christ. And the choice has to be made. A decision has to be reached. And foolishly, he thought he could sit on the fence, try to wash away all responsibility, but as I said earlier, his non-deciding was a decision in itself. The fact that he didn't want anything to do with Jesus meant that he was actually rejecting Christ and turning him over to be crucified. And friends, no matter how perplexing the question might be, what shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ, it has to be faced. It has to be faced. It's a question that you can't avoid. You have to reach a decision on this matter. You cannot be neutral. Let me tell you, he is, especially those who are hearing the gospel, he is for you the inescapable Christ, because the claims of Christ are being brought to bear upon your heart and your life. The Lord Jesus, in in his own ministry, put it very plainly. He said, he that is not with me is against me. So there it is. And right now, if you're not saved, anyone who's watching this or listening to this message, you're on the side of the mob. You're against Christ. Because my Bible tells me that you're an enemy of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. The carnal mind, that's the mind as it is by nature, or the minding of the flesh, is enmity against God. It means you're God's enemy. But when you hear the gospel and the claims of Christ brought to bear upon your life, you're brought to a crossroads. You can either go on in sin on the broad road that leads to destruction, or you may take Christ and change roads and change directions to the straight and the narrow way. That's the way it is. There's a little chorus I used to sing as a child. If I can remember the words, it goes something like this. I met Jesus at the crossroads where the two ways meet. Satan too was standing there and he said, come this way. Lots and lots of pleasures I can give to you today. But I said, no, there's Jesus here. See what he offers me. My sins are all forgiven. I'm on my way to heaven. Praise God. That's the way for me. When the gospel is preached, the sinner finds himself at the crossroads. My father was saved on the 26th of February 1956, before I was born. My dad lived a very sinful life by his own admission. There were a group of men that he used to play darts and dominoes and 
devil's cards with. That's what I call them, devil's cards. They used to gamble. They used to be sitting there smoking and drinking the night away. And a petition was put up in that neighborhood where they had a little hut, where they had a shabin there, their little drinking den. The, peti- the petition for the neighbors was that they be evicted from that field. But there was a man who lived beside that field. He used to run gospel meetings in his hayloft. His name was Sidney Murphy. They called his meeting house Murphy's Loft. He said, no, I'm not signing the petition. Because I'm praying for these men that the Lord will save them. My dad and his friends heard this good news and they decided it would be a really nice gesture to go along to Sydney's wee meeting on a Sunday night. So they started doing that on Sunday nights. But then the heat started to come on. They realized every time they went there, they're going to hear the gospel and the claims of Christ. And one by one, they had different excuses why they couldn't make it. So this one night, my dad was going to go there to meet some of his friends at the meeting. But as Providence would have it, 26th of February, 1956, my dad went into the meeting a couple of minutes late. None of his buddies were there. But he sat down and he heard the gospel preached. And that night, my dad, with tears running down his face, stayed behind and sought the Lord and was saved. And when God saves a person, he does a really good job of it. Because he never looked back from that day. Never looked back. In fact, he saw a number of his his buddies converted in subsequent years. But oftentimes my dad would speak about his testimony, speak about the night he was saved. And he knew that night he was on the spot. He knew that night he was at a crossroads. And he needed to go the right way. And by the grace of God he did. And I'm ever so glad that he did. Because the whole trajectory of my life and that of my siblings was changed. Listen, as an unsaved person, if there is a person like that watching this, you're now at a crossroads. You can go on in your sins on that broad road, or you can take Christ and change roads to the straight and the narrow way. But to remain as you are is to reject him and to crucify him afresh. But let me say this finally about the question of all questions. It is a pressing question. I say it's a pressing question because there was an urgency in Pilate's voice as he uttered these words. The pressure was on. It was right then or never. He couldn't wait to think it over. The harling mob was growing more and more impatient and restless. He had to decide there and then. So what did he do? Mark 15 verse 15. You can see it there. He decided to placate the multitude and to sell his own soul into the bargain. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. He released Barabbas and delivered Jesus over to death. You know, there's some grim poetry here. The surname Barabbas literally means son of the father. 
And there are some early manuscripts apparently that indicate that his given name was Jesus. In fact, there are translations of Matthew 27:16 that have the words Jesus Barabbas, Jesus Son of the Father. So really you could say here that the crowd preferred Jesus Barabbas to Jesus Bar Joseph, the real son of the Father. Why was this? Because Barabbas was a grotesque form of the Messiah that Israel wanted. Barabbas was a leading zealot of the time. A political activist who had taken to the bandit trail. He was like a guerrilla fighter today, seeking to overthrow the Romans. A man of action who would even commit murder to reach his own ends politically. And in the twisted thinking of some people in Palestine, he was a patriot. That's what they thought of him. His vitality and his clan appealed to the mob. But Jesus had disappointed them with his inaction. They they were going to make him a king. They thought he would take the throne. He would overthrow the Caesar. But that was not the Lord's Intention. So the people chose lawlessness instead of righteousness, violence instead of love, war instead of peace. And we live in a world that's very much the same today. Easier to follow after a revolutionary than a king riding on a donkey. Barabbas. He put Barabbas and Christ to the people for a decision, but actually he made his own decision. Barabbas would be released. Jesus would be killed. He decided quickly because it was a pressing question, but he decided wrongly. And I can assure you today that Pilate, Pontius Pilate, is enduring the torments of hell fire forever. And right now in the gospel is a choice that people have to make. It is a pressing question. What shall I do then with Jesus which is called Christ? And not what will I do with him in the future. What will I do with him now, today? See, there are no tomorrow promises in the scripture. You ever notice that? There are no tomorrow promises. It's always today. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. There are no future promises. Because the future is not guaranteed to anyone. Every time I preach the gospel, I must be aware of this, that I may never have another opportunity to preach the gospel. And you may never have another opportunity to hear it. There is... A time we know not when, a place we know not where, that seals the destiny of men for glory or despair. So, when you preach the gospel, you must urge people to come now. Now is the accepted time. Joshua chapter 24 verse 15 contains these great words. If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. 
But Joshua closed that out by saying, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. J.C. Ryle observed that there's a striking type that the release of Barabbas affords of the gospel plan of salvation. He said, the guilty is set free and the innocent is put to death. The great sinner is delivered and the sinless one remains bound. Barabbas is spared and Christ is crucified. We have in this striking fact a vivid emblem of the manner in which God pardons and justifies the ungodly. He does it because Christ has suffered in their stead the just for the unjust. They deserve punishment, but a mighty substitute has suffered for them. They deserve eternal death, but a glorious surety has died for them. We are all by nature in the position of Barabbas. We're guilty, wicked, and worthy of condemnation. But when we were without strength, Christ the innocent died for the ungodly. And now God, for Christ's sake, can be just and yet the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Here's the question of all questions, men and women. What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? What shall I do with Jesus? The little chorus puts it well. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. For one day your soul may be asking, what will he do with me? Because you see, there is a day coming when it will not be Pilate on the judgment seat, it will be Christ. We'll stand before him. And Matthew 25 makes it clear that the sheep will be on his right hand and the goats on the left. And to those who are the sheep, he will say, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But to the rest, to the goats, he will say, Depart from me, ye wicked, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? Lord, we thank thee today for thy word. It is a solemn word. It's a very challenging word. It's a very sobering word. Lord, I pray today that the claims of Christ in the gospel will be brought to bear upon many hearts. And that thou will give deciding grace. That thou wouldst cause sinners to turn from their sinful ways. To seek the Lord while he may be found. And to call upon him while he is near. We thank thee for thy great salvation. Wrought out at such a great price on Calvary's cross. Thank you Lord that it's freely offered to all who will believe. Whosoever will may come. Lord speak today. We ask in Jesus name. Amen.